Uh, you know, I was told there was actually a meeting in Lexington, Virginia, where the powers that be declared that the style was not really old time. So after that, it was somewhat controversial. And, and I actually, of, the, of that original group, it turned out I was the only one who really stuck with it. Greetings, everybody. Keith Billick here, and you know that as soon as you hear the sound of my voice, it's time for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, the place where you are allowed and welcomed and encouraged to let that uh, banjo nerd flag fly very proudly, and uh, I welcome you in, and I'm glad you're with me here. I have a great interview to share with you today, but before I do that, I always have to give a big, huge thanks to all my listeners, but there's one very special listener, the VIP supporter of the show, and today that is a gentleman named Sebastian over in the UK. Now, Sebastian, not only do I owe you a huge thanks for your generous support of the podcast, but I owe you an apology because every time I schedule one of these VIP lounge video meetups that we have every month for the VIP supporters, he begs me to make it a little earlier because of uh, the time difference in the UK. And of course, I never do it because, you know, that it's not always the most convenient. But uh, so, Sebastian, I'm pledging that uh, in February, we'll do an earlier one. I got you. And if any of you have no idea what I'm talking about, the way to support this show is to head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. You can sign up to pitch in just a couple dollars a month to keep the lights on over here at Picky Fingers HQ. And you do get amazing rewards in return. One of the coolest ones is you get invited to the monthly video meetup, the VIP lounge for the very important pickers. And of course, there's other rewards involved as well. So please head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Check that out. See what it's all about. And uh, if you're feeling so inclined, sign up to support the show. I always really appreciate that. Another great way to show off your banjo loyalty is to buy official Picky Fingers podcast merchandise. That's over at banjopodcast.com. It's not too late to get those before the uh, big Valentine's Day gift-giving opportunity that we all have coming up. And I know that's what everyone wants, is some uh, official logo hoodies, shirts, hats, stickers, all the rest. So yeah, check it out, banjopodcast.com. And as always, don't hesitate to email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns. Featured guest is Ken Perlman. 
Ken is one of the key innovators of the melodic claw hammer style of playing. He's also a folklorist who has done extensive studying and learning about the fiddle music traditions of Scotland, Ireland, and in particular, Prince Edward Island, where he has spent a lot of time learning that music and has become somewhat of a steward for that repertoire. And as if that wasn't enough, he has parlayed all of that knowledge and experience into a pretty substantial educational empire he's published numerous books and now is the director of three of the most popular banjo camps across the country. So needless to say, we had a lot to get into and talk about. So without further ado, give a warm picky fingers welcome to Ken Perlman. I grew up in New York City. I live in Boston now. And uh, you can probably blame my exposure to the banjo on uh, the uh, Ithaca, New York folk scene in the late 1960s. And uh, I had been playing guitar for a few years. And um, I just had quite a number of friends and acquaintances who were really good old-time banjo pickers. And I thought, hey, I'd like to do that. So, oh, excellent. So that's... Uh, that's kind of uh, how the bug got placed, and then I got, I bought like a really cheap banjo, and and how old were you at this at this point? I was about twenty. Okay. Uh, and I started guitar, let's say at fifteen, and and I already had a fairly well developed left hand from sure. from the guitar, and so it was a matter of. Uh, you know, watching people and see what they did and realize that uh, what I was doing uh, is not backwards finger picking. <laughs> so I, I, I said, so I learned to a certain degree as if it were backwards finger picking. Then I realized, no, it's not backwards finger picking. Then I had to kind of go back t- to the beginning. And, um, and uh, I would always sit in the front row at concerts and watch what people did. Mm hmm. And you were going to a lot of banjo concerts or still primarily just like more folky, guitar-based kind of stuff? Um, well, it, it was a mixture, but obviously if I was learning to play banjo, there would be a banjo involved. It, it could be. Yeah. Uh, but we had a, a lot of good models there because uh, Walt Koken was in the neighborhood and, and uh, a contemporary of mine, Howie Burson, was uh, about... He was a couple, three years ahead of me on the banjo, and he had really begun to develop a unique style. So he was inspirational. And then, and then there were some people who played um, that didn't make names for themselves as banjo players in the folk scene. There was John Roberts, who was known as a British uh, Copper Family-style singer. He was on John and Tony. I remember sitting down with him at one point and he was playing Cluck Old Hand or something. And I thought, yeah, wow, <laughs> that's really cool. You know, and then uh, there was another friend of mine named Eric Mintz, who uh, he had learned from Walt. So, and and uh, his dad was in the uh, antique business, so he managed to acquire uh, an original white lady. <laughs> oh, wow. So That's incredible. Yeah. I already have a bunch of questions about this. So you were already playing guitar. You were exposing yourself to uh, folk music and and digging that. Are you able to say what it was about 
being exposed to these banjo players that made you want to jump into that world rather than just continuing as a as a guitar player? Yeah, it, it was the um, well. First of all, the 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 sound of the instrument mm-hmm. really appealed to me, but also um, the world of fiddle tunes all of a sudden opened up. And probably if it were 10 years later, I would have gone out and gotten a fiddle. <laughs> but Oh, wow. Why do, you, why do you say that? Because fiddles uh, at the time seemed very rarefied, like hardly anyone played the fiddle. I, I mean, a, uh-huh. few, a few people played and some were quite good, but generally it was fretted instruments. Okay. Um, and so... Anyway, but the the world of fiddle tunes really kind of beckoned and, and drew me in. W- once I had learned the basics, someone uh, kind of turned me on, as they used to say, to a book by John Burke called "Old Time Fiddle Tunes for Banjo." It was a tablature book, but he he was a man. You know, it was a put together by a person who didn't really understand how to write tablature. Okay, <laughs> and uh, and in fact. It was so uh, challenging to learn anything out of this book that I kind of uh, got the bug for writing tabs myself. And I I developed the ambition that I I would, you know, at some point write a book of tablature and people would actually be able to use it. (laughs) That was actually helpful, right? Yeah. So so that kind of pointed me in the direction of... uh, uh, where I actually went, went eventually of uh, writing my own banjo and guitar books yeah. and creating a system of usable tablature. But uh, I did manage to learn a few tunes from that book. Um, and uh, the big problem is that he, he never figured out how to show you where the downbeat was. So he, so he wrote by the phrase. Oh, so no like measure lines or well, something? Well, there were, but they weren't like in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> so if you didn't know the know the tune, and in fact sometimes even if you did, you'd have to kind of speculate and say, well, if the downbeat was on this on the second group of notes, it would sound this way. Yeah, and I would say, wow, well, that's interesting. That, that sounded pretty good. But w- what if it's what if there was no downbeat, and you try that, and I say, well, that sounds pretty good too. And then what if it's on the third group of notes, and and I would try it that way, and I would say, oh, well, that sounds pretty good too. But and it wasn't like now where you could go on YouTube and and find the tune, uh, yeah. seventy five times, you know. So you, uh, so I was left with really often no idea what it was supposed to sound like. It's almost like trying to learn three different pieces in one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it, he did point the way to certain using certain techniques, which later became valuable. So, but but anyway, so then I, I wind up. Uh, I, I had moved back to New York for a while, and then moved back to Ithaca, and uh, with my rudimentary skills, I, I started to go to jam sessions. And well, let me yeah. let me. Let me back you up right there. Yeah. You just you just mentioned that you learned some really valuable techniques despite some of the transcription shortcomings. Uh, are you able to go over some of those techniques that you view as important in your early style? Yeah. Um, and actually, it wasn't just him. It was also watching uh, uh, Howie Burson and Walt. And it was using, uh, basically, it was using the technique of, uh, of double thumbing. But for melody, instead of just rhythm, 
Um, yeah, let me hear some of that. So, um, you know, you'd have something like... So as you likely know about me, and certainly my listeners do, I'm primarily a bluegrass player. So you will have to give me some patience in terms of maybe asking some stupid questions yeah, about Clawhammer style. Yeah, yeah. Um, as an overview, what is double thumbing? Is it what it sounds like using the thumb twice in a row as opposed to mixing up the well, sort the of downstroke? Sort of. And there's actually some uh, disagreement in the scene of what exactly the term refers to, but I'm kind of borrowing, I'm using Pete Seeger's usage. It's, uh, um, it's alternated. The thumb is kind of alternating of following a, uh, well, okay. So there's <laughs> back up. So there's uh drop thumbing and double thumbing. Okay. So drop thumbing is using the thumb on the long strings of the banjo. Right. Um, so um instead of just right uh and double thumbing and it's really drop thumbing that I was more referring to with John Burke but uh double thumbing's alternating the thumb in quick succession uh, on a long string and then fifth string. Got it. So, or you could do it the opposite way. Yeah. And, and uh, so it, it uh, is analogous to a bluegrass roll in a sense. Exactly. And also analogous to, to bluegrass, um, I assume that what you think is important about that style is the melodies that it allows you to, That's to right. pick out. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, uh, you know, I remember uh, I would, uh, uh, one thing I did in those days, hitchhiking was very common. <laughs> uh -huh. So I would hitchhike to Ithaca and I'd have my banjo. And as I was waiting for a ride, uh, Sit and mess. I would stand around and mess around on the banjo until somebody picked me up. <laughs> and they still picked you up. And amazing, yeah. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so uh, I was back back in Ithaca, and mm -hmm. um, and I would go to these jam sessions, and, and the first thing was my mouth would hang open, saying, "Oh, I had no idea it was this fast." <laughs> So, yeah, right. so then I'd have to go back and and uh, practice some more to get them up to speed. And was this all old time music at this point? Not in the sense of Appalachian music, but it, it was all fiddle tunes. But mm -hmm. in, in those days, there wasn't like these lines uh, right. between old time and northern and Irish. It was like all you know, here's one tune and here's another tune and here's... Yeah, I guess you know. I just wasn't sure if you were following along with the maybe accompanying singer-songwriter or if you were already... Maybe it's jumping too far ahead to start talking about the influences of Irish and Canadian music on you. I didn't know if you were maybe already venturing that direction, but this was pretty... Yeah, very Relatively close. straight ahead, claw hammer stuff. Yeah, it's like in the beginning, everything was in co <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it solidifies later. So mm -hmm. uh, at least in that beginning, you could, you know, you'd hear June Apple, and then maybe you would hear uh, Mrs. McLeod's Reel, and then you would hear Mason's Apron, and then maybe you would hear uh, Ducks on the Mill Pond. You, you know, it was... And, and what happened was people would turn to me at certain points and they would say, oh, uh, here's the tune Devil's Dream. Everyone knows you can't play it Clawhammer style, so you don't have to play on this one. <laughs> and then I would go home and I would figure out and I would say, is that true? <laughs> and then I would figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And then I would come back the next week and I would, I would be able to play it and this made it and people would say wow that's great so that was encouraging and then you know, or they would say oh here's a, a jig you can't play it on a five-string banjo so don't bother to play it and then i would go home and, and figure out how to do it so and, and and this would this went on for you know as long as i was in ithaca which was another year and a half and so uh obviously my the breadth and depth of my playing kind of really improved over that period and uh um and then and, and i and already had a uh, um a focus <laughs> which was figuring out how to play things that um had never been played before in clawhammer stuff yeah i i really want to dig as far as we can in, into this stuff i guess as just in terms of context were you aware of other banjo players who were playing in a melodic style at that point? Yes. Or was that not really a thing? Well, yes, because um, how they, everyone I knew was playing in either a melodic style or a quasi-melodic style. Let me uh, actually qualify that. Um, my immediate circle. But there was also people who played kind of a very rhythmic, chunky, Grandpa Jonesy type style that was mostly for song accompaniment. But even the folks that were playing melodic claw hammer, it, it was a common, um, a common thought that they wouldn't be able to pick out these fiddle tunes, such as Devil's Dream or, or a jig, like you were saying? Um, at least in the opinion of the people at the jam sessions. <laughs> okay. Now it's possible, had they been there, um, since they were more experienced players than I, that maybe they could have done the same thing, but they weren't so there and I was, but anyway, yeah. So I'd love to hear about how you did develop the ability to do that. How do you, sitting sitting here with your claw hammer style and your open back banjo and, and devil's dream in your mind, how do you translate that onto the fingerboard? And I guess the next thing I'll ask is... What are what are some tips to playing jigs? Was the other thing you mentioned that was maybe a commonly not maligned, but maybe a an unexplored area for clawhammer players? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about uh, Devil's Dream, um, which I later discovered was you know a Scottish tune that I had no idea at the time, um, and it's related to uh, another tune called Devil Among the Tailors, but um, so what I figured out is that if I tune the, the fifth string to E, which mm. is a very traditional thing to do, really, <laughs> to retune the banjo. Yeah. So you have... Mm. 
Okay. And just just for clarity's sake, I assume that you actually are tuning that down to a D at, at the moment because no, of it's your e. banjo not being in this is a. An... Oh, 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 oh. Is that what's happening? Uh, no, um, because if it was tuned to A, that would be F sharp. <laughs> but you're you're playing the tune in G. I'm playing right now, it in right? G, but but this is an E. But oh, it, okay. But if I had tuned it, if I put a capo on, then I would have to okay. take this up to F sharp. Okay. Okay. So so typically that tune is in A, which would make your fifth string an F sharp, but just for right now it's, yeah it's an e right and, and, okay. and another thing that i used there which um uh was floating around in my immediate community but uh the john burke book didn't use is the what we call nowadays the alternate string pull-off which is a i think it's a term that i actually coined in one of my books um and that's where you uh, hit one string and you pull off another string so, yeah. So, so let's let's take that slowly because that's yeah. definitely an unfamiliar yeah, technique. Yeah, and the us. reason you would do that is because in Clawhammer, just the shape of the hand, the thumb is kind of falling behind the hand. So um, uh, sequences where you're going backwards, we're going low uh, down. You're descending are easier to coordinate than ones that are ascending. Yeah. So that the, makes sense. the alternate string pull off is one technique for uh, getting ascending notes. Um, so in this case, here I'm hitting the second string open and I have a finger on the first string and then I pull off that string. And now I have, yeah. now I'm playing the third string and pulling off the first. And then pull off, pull off, and, and it's hard to keep in tune. Yeah, yeah, and. And, uh, Sounds like a lot of things to keep track of. It, it is, and, and then uh, of course a lot. And, and then as I got more sophisticated, you learn to um, focus on the phrasing of the tune, so it sounds like the tune and not just a collection of notes. Yeah. So, so you learn to uh, weight the um, the two parts of the stroke, the downstroke and the thumb, so that um, you get. Um, a movement from, let's say, upbeat to downbeat, like this is this is your uh, Mickey Mouse Club lick, but but it will be. Yeah. But. Right. Yeah. Give it a little a little bit of a lilt, maybe a little bit of like the like a Boeing type That's of right. syncopation. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly like Boeing. And uh, in terms of jigs, uh, I kind of figured that um, if I just added an extra note to drop thumb,
So what was everyone's reaction when you started coming to these jams with things that they had previously thought were not possible on Clawhammer banjo? Well, uh, at first it was really cool, but then by the, <laughs> by the end of the 70s, uh, when the Round Peak thing began to be popular, all of a sudden this approach became the enemy. <laughs> now, d explain that to me. What, it, what is the Round Peak thing and uh, in what ways did it make your style the enemy? There's the round peak thing as it was in reality, and there's the round peak thing as it kind of percolated through the folk scene and became what <laughs> what Brad Leftwich um, called festival style. So, but the round peak thing, really, I mean, there were um, a group of musicians in the Mount Airy area of North Carolina, mm -hmm. and they had a particular approach to Clawhammer. And uh, it became uh, very popular within the folk scene, probably beginning in the 60s, but certainly by the end of the 70s, it was beginning to kind of drive everything else out of fashion. And it was a, a very, you know, in and of itself, it's a very wonderful style. Um, uh, the focus being uh, a, a perfect, uh, unity between fiddlers of that region and the banjoists of that region. Mm. And uh, so th this is people like um, Kyle Creed and Fred Cockerham and Tommy Jarrell, who was also a, right. a great fiddler. And they had a wonderful style, but, um, you know, as, as it percolated through the folk scene, it kind of got boiled down and boiled down and boiled down to uh, where, you know, people would go to a jam session and basically hunt and peck <laughs> gotcha. looking for notes to play. And all of a sudden, uh, the more melodic approach to Clawhammer, which had uh, become, it had sort of a little splash in uh, the mid-70s, about 1976, the recording came out called Melodic Clawhammer. was on it and Bob Carlin actually produced it and Henry Sapoznik was on it and Andy Kahn um, and so it had a little splash but um, there was sort of a reaction to it uh, you know I was told there was actually a meeting in Lexington Virginia where the powers that be declared that the style was not really old time the banjo Illuminati. That's they, right, exactly. They banished you. Yeah. So, you know, so after that, it was somewhat controversial. But, um, and, and I actually, of the of that original group, I, I was the only, it turned out I was the only one who really stuck with it. Wow, interesting. Um, Henry sort of abandoned it for Klezmer, and Bob became a round peak player, as did Ant Bob and Andy. <laughs> 
became round peak uh, devotees. Yeah, um, how interesting. And uh, but it's really fascinating, you know, if you have um, the right fiddler, uh, you can create just as tight a a, a, a music meld as the round peak people did. As, Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've heard you do it before. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, I worked with Alan Jabour for 15 years and, and we, we had a great sound. to say that the reason that you persevered while maybe all of your colleagues uh, adapted their styles is the same reason that you said that if you had started 10 years later, you'd be a fiddler? Is there something about those melodies that is sort of the main thing that draws you and made you want to stick with the way that you were doing that? Um, I think um, that's right on. Yeah, I, I would say that yeah. um, it, it, it was always the, the melodies that drew me in and, uh, and the phrasing of the melodies and the feeling of the melodies. And perhaps if I played the fiddle, that would have been uh, sufficient and I, I might have gone a different direction with my banjo playing. But Yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Sorry for the interruption, folks. We'll be right back with the rest of the episode in just a few moments, but I had to take this opportunity to tell you about some of the sponsors of Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The first one up is Elderly Instruments. I always tell people how Elderly is the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage stringed instruments of all kind. They're the first place I go for all my banjo needs. And also, by the way, any guitar, violin, ukulele, mandolin needs you have, it, they're going to have all of that. But you don't need to take my word for it anymore, folks. Elderly Instruments was just named the best small business in the country by the United States Chamber of Commerce. So first of all, congratulations to Stan Werben, Lillian Werben, and all the rest of the Elderly family for that remarkable award. And second of all, I encourage you all to go see what the fuss is about. Either get into the showroom in Lansing, Michigan, or visit them online at elderly.com. They have the entire inventory up there. They ship worldwide, and they have that great customer service that wins folks' awards. Uh, and they're just a phone call away if you ever need any advice on any of those products. So once again, elderly.com or call them at 517-372-7880. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also sponsored by our good friends over at Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is the nation's number one site for streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele where you can learn bluegrass, old time, and many other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Here is some of the selections, and this is just the banjo stuff. You can take beginning banjo with Bill Evans, bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans, clawhammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, 
or contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, it's going to come with high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tablature, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And perhaps best of all, Picky Fingers listeners get a month free by entering coupon code PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at checkout. So once more, go to pegheadnation.com and enter Picky Fingers at checkout to get your first month free. The Picky Fingers podcast is also brought to you by Sullivan Banjos. Now, I'm very familiar with Sullivan Banjos. I've been playing one for nearly 20 years. I get tons of compliments on that banjo's sound, and that's really no surprise because the Sullivan name has been synonymous with incredible banjo workmanship and tone for decades. So whether you are looking for a pre-war style traditional design on through the craziest custom design you can think of, Eric Sullivan is here for you to make your dreams a reality. So get in touch with him over at sullivanbanjo.com, email him at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com, or sometimes the best way is just the old-fashioned way. Give him a call at 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell him that Keith at the Picky Fingers Podcast sent you. I mean, you've, you've already demonstrated some really great skills. Is there anything else that pops out at you in terms of maybe if other pay- players out there want to develop the ability to pick out these more intricate fiddle melodies that are unusual to hear on Clawhammer Banjo? Are there general ideas or approaches that you might be able to, to share about doing that? Um, why, yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, one thing... Um, that I use a lot is um, fretting the fifth string, mm. which I, I have to admit that I borrowed from uh, bluegrass players yeah. and then adapted to Clawhammer. It, it always struck me as odd that if you have the string and there are frets on it, why you wouldn't use it, I, I can't imagine. Right. Yeah, I have like a series of shapes that I use a lot. For example, uh, it would be like... second series. Now, tr- trying to describe that as best as we can for, for audio listeners, I, I do recognize a lot of that from being a bluegrass player. It seems like you ha- you take the first, second, and fifth string and are kind of working in three-note clusters just kind of going up and down the neck to make little little scale snippets. Yeah. Is, is that essentially a, a fair summary of, of what your approach is there? Well, yeah, well, that's kind of a beginning to it, and then... Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, for, for example, um, uh, this... Uh, in this cluster... This series of clusters, the idea is you, you take a take a note and you go up two scale notes and then come back to the first one mm-hmm. so so g so here's a 
uh, G on the eighth fret of second string, and then um, A would be on the fifth string, seventh fret, and then B would be on the first string, ninth fret. And I'm going, in terms of strings, I'm going two, five, one, two. And then I go up and I'm playing A, B, C, B. So here it's the ninth. Yeah, it's it's all the diatonic movement. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... Another thing I use is um, uh, Keith pick, Keith picking. <laughs> oh, the like the, just the melodic style. Yeah, is what you're yeah, referring I've, to. I've, yeah, I've adapted the melodic style to Clawhammer. Um, so we have. Uh, this yeah. would be a G open G seventh fret on fourth string open B. Fifth fret on third string. You probably know you know this backwards and forwards. Yeah, th- this part's very familiar yeah, to me. Open yeah. one, <laughs> uh, fifth fret on second string, fourth fret on first string, and then the fifth. And then going right. back, I start with seventh fret on first string. Finally, something that actually looks familiar to me. That's yeah, nice. <laughs> so that, that's another thing that I use. And then I talked about uh, alternate string pull-offs. So here would be an alternate string pull-off. And you can imagine from a D7 chord, for example, you have that configuration. And if you hit the third string and you use the first finger sitting on the second string to pull off that string, so it'd be like this. And you can move that shape around to other strings and other frets. So that's one configuration. Or like the top of a C chord, like you, this is in G tuning, of course, where you hit, let's say, the second string and pull off the first. And you can also move that configuration around to different, to different strings. It's just an example of what alternate string pull-offs are like. Uh, Bill Cheatham just gives you an idea of how to use alternate string pull-offs, so... That's an alternate string pull-off there. Here's another. Here's another. So put that together. (laughs) 
so given that you were in a lot of ways forging this new path um, of this melodic style of claw hammer that not a lot of people had been even delving into, who did you look up to in, in terms of your banjo influences or or was it banjo players? Maybe you were more influenced by fiddlers or something who would talk about who who you were influenced by in those days? Well, in my early days, as I say, there were a group of banjo players mm-hmm. at, on hand, but after a certain stage, it was uh, fiddle players. Yeah, um, It was Irish fiddle players and Scottish fiddle players. And then I had, the, you know, um, in the early 90s, I had this opportunity to go up to Prince Edward Island and, and record well over a hundred fiddle players and yeah that's the the next thing i was going to touch on is i I think if a a lot of people if they know one thing about you they probably know that you're the guy who went to prince edward island and has studied that music quite a lot and have you know brought back in in terms of like recordings and also transcribed pieces of music have brought that tradition you know with you I guess talk about the opportunity that you had and talk about what has captured your attention so vividly with that tradition of music. I had, um, I guess in the late 80s, I went back to graduate school and I was go- I was going to get a, a PhD in uh, ethnomusicology, mm-hmm. but I decided to declare victory at the master's. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But um, I, st- I had this idea that I wanted, I still wanted to do a project. So, uh, I, I sent out all these letters. Remember letters? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've written a few. Yeah. It's been a while though. Yeah. Uh, I sent out all these letters to Scottish fraternal organizations. I was going to go to Scotland and, mm-hmm. and study Scottish music. And I got one letter back saying, well, we can't give you any money, but we have a house on Prince Edward Island. We have some, a lot of cool fiddlers here. Oh wow! So, uh, if you want to come up, we'll feed feed and house you for as long as you want to stay. <laughs> and and who is this coming from? This is still some sort of Scottish organization. No, well, it wasn't. Well, it presented itself as a foundation, but it was actually one person. <laughs> okay. Uh, who ha- who did have a house, and he did put me up and introduce me to some fiddle players. So this was 1989, and within a, a few days, uh, I had met, you know, dozens of really in, uh, high-quality traditional fiddle players, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. And anyway, uh, some some time later, I was uh, at the um, uh, library of Library of Congress and folklore division and and they had a book there it said opportunities in folklore naturally very thin (laughs) (laughs) and and i was summing through this book and there was call for projects they were looking for projects of people who wanted to go out and study traditional music so i it was a organization called earth watch from massachusetts so I, i put um i wrote them a letter and within a few days they wrote me back and said they were very interested and they sort of coached me through the whole process. And, uh, and so by the next summer, I was back on Prince Edward Island looking for a place where a project could be located. And, I, you know, and, and I, I found a, a fiddler who was willing to rent me his family, his old family house that was vacant. And 
Um, so the first trip to PEI, uh, was this essentially for fun? Like there was no um, intended deliverable for, that came out of that? Yeah, it, it was for, it was for fun. It was basically I needed vacation and, yeah. and you know, I had never been there and it sounded like a cool place to go. And Oh, it sounds like a great opportunity, yeah. Yeah, but by the second summer, I was already preparing the ground for a project. Mm-hmm. And the third summer, 1991... Um, and the way Earthwatch operators like Tom Sawyer Anonymous, like they would send you a team of people for two weeks who would have paid to take part in your project. And then they would split the money between you and, and their bureaucracy. And, uh, oh, interesting. And you would use the money to support the team and, and rent a space and, and get supplies, which in my case were tapes and, batteries and so so what was the intended project an album the intended project it started out very modest i was just going to go around and 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 record fiddle players and both in Mm. audio and video so not even necessarily a musical collaboration or was it 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 was an exploration it was a a collecting exposition at first i felt a little bit at sea because I, I, I wasn't sure what to ask and, or how to bring out interesting information. But then, you know, you, you, after about, after the first couple of weeks, it was, oh, wait a minute, there's something really, really interesting here going on. And these players yeah. are every bit as interesting as the, the guys on the old 78s. Yeah, yeah. Except they're, except they're here live. And, and there was one day, I guess I had been there about a month recording. Well, actually, I'd been there a couple of months, but it was a month of recording. And we, we, we were at one fiddler's house and he said, uh, and this actually is in the introduction of the, the book that I wrote. One thing, boys, you're always welcome. In the old days, there were three important people in the town. The, the priest was first or the minister, then the school teacher and then the fiddler. <laughs> All right. Because you couldn't have a wedding without the fiddler. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like, I mean, to, to most of us, Prince Edward Island sounds, you know, like, like a very remote kind of area. And, and, it, and it is in a lot of ways, but is, it sounds coming from you that fiddling, I mean, you said you met a dozen good fiddlers like your first day there and like i don't know a, a dozen good fiddlers in my area well this is just I've it. Lived here for years yeah well this, um, is, this is just it there were hundreds on this island at that time and yeah. and the reason was that every community used to have its stock of fiddlers and f- fiddle dances were the main form of recreation right up up mm-hmm. into the 1950s and 60s so you had all of these fiddlers who uh, had learned to play one of their traditions because there were, you know, numerous regional styles within the island. And uh, in 1990, they were still there. I mean, there were um, in 1990, someone born in 1920 was still playing and and playing quite well. You know, so it it it, it was just a, a remarkable experience because um, somehow we would find people by word of mouth uh-huh. and and we'd call them up and they would say things like well oh sure yeah you could you could come and 
you know, I, I'll be happy to t talk with you, but don't you have any fiddlers down in Boston? Why would you want to come? <laughs> you know, but that's really funny. Talk a bit about the the music that you were. I'll say discovering. Obviously, you're not discovering no. music, but discovering personally for yourself. Yes. T talk musically about you know maybe some of the differences in the fiddle styles there compared to what we might be accustomed to hearing from a round peak style fiddler or or a regular old time fiddler. Well, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that it was this. It's the same stock of people who settled Prince Edward Island as who settled Appalachia. Mm -hmm. and at around the same time. Yeah, there's a common family tree happening, but but there's that split. Um, yeah, so, so we're talking, you know, Scottish and Irish settlement, uh, bringing uh, fiddle music and, and customs around fiddling from the old country to the new world and expressing them in, in the new world. So in, in, in Prince Edward Island, it's only 150 miles long. And, right. and the, the eastern part is facing Cape Breton. And in the part that's immediately facing Cape Breton, the fiddlers sound very much like Cape Breton fiddlers. In, in, the, yeah. in the western part of the island that's facing New Brunswick, they, there is a very, very strong Acadian influence. So it's a, a whole different rhythmic kick. Yeah, and, the French Canadian, yeah. Well, it's different from French. It's not like Quebecois. Okay. It, it, the Acadian sound is quite. You'd have to hear it to. to I, I've to heard Acadian difference. music, but I'm st I'm struggling with the exact boundaries of of which goes in, <laughs> in which bucket, and I know there's some overlap too. Yeah, there is, but um, the, the Acadians and the Quebecois actually don't like each other that much, <laughs> 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 or at least didn't. You know, there was yeah uh, figures. Yeah. Is there yeah. is there any way uh, I'm. I'm thinking a, a perfect demonstration, but tell tell me if this is putting you on the spot too much. A, a really cool demonstration might be: Are there any tunes that have crossed over to both, like the the Prince Edward Island tradition and also the American Appalachian tradition, that you might be able to demonstrate how it sounds when a Prince Edward Island fiddler plays it compared to <laughs> how it sounds when an American fiddler plays it? I would love to just kind of experience the the contrast there somehow. Yeah, gosh, um, there there are um, you know alternatively, if there's just a, a good what what like the soldier's joy of the Prince Edward Island <laughs> repertoire is you know some sort of bedrock oh. foundational type of fiddle tune. Um, it, anything else to to get to hear some of this slightly different influence here? Well. Um, Okay. Um, one thing that comes to mind um, is uh, the tune Lord MacDonald's Reel. Okay. Which um, is played in the South as uh, leather breeches. Now, here's uh, Lord MacDonald's Reel, and uh, here's how I played it on the Island Boy CD. This, is the, this would be the Prince Edward Island version.
that's the that's Lord McLeod's reel. Lord McDonald's. Lord McDonald's. And that uh, originates in the in 18th century Scotland. And mm -hmm. leather breeches. Uh, uh, well, it starts on a uh, tends to start on the high part. Probably hear uh, the similarity between that and leather britches. Absolutely. And so that's 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 just one. There, there are a lot of others. Uh, oh, uh, sometimes, um, um, uh, interestingly, um, there were certain parts of Prince Edward Island that were easily able to pick up WWVA Wheeling, West Virginia. Hmm. Wow. Incredible. You know, so you would hear uh, a fair number of tunes from from the southern repertoire, okay, floating around. Um, like, for example, um, oh, Um, like here's one that one of the fiddlers learned from the radio. So this is the Prince Edward Island version of Sugar in the Gourd. hear um you know like tunes like uh they would play tunes like red wing and darling nelly gray Overall, I mean, you were obviously attracted to this place by more than just a free place to stay for a vacation. You know, you, you've you've dedicated a lot of hours of yeah, your life. I kind of fell I fell in love with the culture and the people and and uh, yeah, I, I guess that's what I want to 
hear from you about what what is it about the the culture and the people that's so fascinating like what what should we know about that place i i would love to go there sometime i don't know if i ever will but it's it's a, a fascinating to hear about well you know unfortunately and, and this is probably also true of the south that the old timers that i met are, are gone mm-hmm. for the most part you know because they they were 65 70 75 yeah in 1990 sure so it's not quite the same place but you know what 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 i what they would describe as a place where you know music was essentially the center of life not only for them but for the communities that that they lived in and the community dance or house party or schoolhouse dance this this was the the main form of recreation or a school needed to raise money for a project they would hold a dance and people would contribute you know so, yeah. so much per dance and 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 this is the way they raise money and um yeah but how interesting but uh also interestingly uh i, I mean one of the <clears throat> major flashes of inspiration <laughs> that i had was you know the, the, there was this stereotype there and I think most places where um, traditional music took place of, of fiddlers being kind of lazy ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> and the reason was that they were encouraged to play late into the night. Oh, I see where this is going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and uh, constantly plied with, with liquor <laughs> yeah. to, to make them uh, happier. And then the next day they would be tired, and and no one would say, would say, "Hey, you know, we should go help help this guy <laughs> out with his chores because uh, he 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 gave." He very, helped us out by playing for us the night before. Yeah, <laughs> fiddling wasn't considered work. You see, right? Yeah. And another thing that would happen is uh, the way that most of the fiddlers would learn tunes is, of course, by ear. But how does that work? Well. They would uh, often wake from sleep or be in the middle of a work day, and a, t- and a tune that they had heard would come into their mind. Hmm. And if they could go and grab a fiddle and just scratch out the melody on the on an instrument, they would capture it. Right. But if they didn't do that, it would just fly away. So the uh, their neighbors would see them break in the middle of their. <laughs> Workday and go grab at that a, moment's notice, yeah, a, a, and just go and grab a fiddle. And they said, Oh, he is so addicted to the fiddle, <laughs> so lazy that he is, yeah, that's uh, funny, just grabbing. Them. But actually, what was happening is, you know, there's an artist <laughs> at work who is just trying to expand his musical horizons, and, yeah, and, and uh, so that was another thing that went into the stereotype. And and then Prince Edward Island had a uh, uh, a long long uh, period of prohibition, like oh really? Like, when was that? Um, well, it started in the late 19th century and extended into the 1960s. Oh wow! Didn't know that. And it it, it sort of uh, relented by stages, but for a long time it was kind of illegal to drink. Of course, this is this didn't stop anyone. They would they were um, Smugglers who would bring the bootleggers, yeah, the bootleggers who'd bring rum in from uh, Saint Pierre and Miquelon to French islands off Newfoundland, 
uh-huh. and and people would make their own um they call well moonshine is what they called it but they would make it from uh, molasses and yeast okay. you know the process was described to me in great detail <laughs> by by one of the fiddlers but anyway so it became uh, because it was illegal it became a custom to not drink in public oh interesting so people would go behind the barn as it were with their flask and and, and, and drink sneak there and, and then yeah. come back um and but the fiddler was chained to his chair and had to drink uh-huh. in public so that gave them the reputation of being alcoholics oh interesting and that was still the case even after you said prohibition went until the 60s so by the time you were there oh yeah there was still just this like uh stereotype framework of yeah okay yeah interesting so um there was a period where a lot of young people wouldn't go into fiddling because of the stereotype or or would be discouraged. As the island modernized, which was very late, like in the 60s and 70s, yeah. they were about... Yeah, it's 40, a bit more isolated than a lot of places. They were about 40 or 50 years behind um, other parts of North America. Yeah. So as it modernized, um, you had a, a falling away from interest in music. And in, any idea how that stands today? Like, when's the last time you were there and, and has a lot of the fiddling tradition, in fact, died off in, in terms of current day? Well, um, there was a, a revival, and, and um, I, I sort of arrived there right in the middle of it, because they, they had founded a, a fiddler's association in the mid-'70s called the uh, Prince Edward Island Fiddler's Society. Well, their two main aims was to make fiddling respectable again. <laughs> <clears throat> And to uh, to get young people interested, yeah. At the time that I landed there in around 1990, they had succeeded in making it respect, sort of respectable, by doing things like charitable outreach and group concerts and. Or this guy who you connected with apparently, who who brought you there. That's right. I th- yeah, but, I would think that that's part of it too. Yeah, yeah, um, maybe a little bit, but. Um, but but anyway, um, so they succeeded in kind of making it respectable, and they were trying to get young people interested in not succeeding very well. Mm-hmm. And just uh, um, maybe two or three years after, it began to take. And by the late 90s, there were a whole slew of younger players. So now there are quite a number of um, young players who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are now uh, professional players. And, oh, that's um, really cool. So uh, quite a number of them are in the Cape Breton orbit. Or it, It's a pretty um, amazing story because the, uh, it, it was like the, the, the local people actually had created their own re- revival. What, what happened in Appalachia is people came in from outside who were interested in the music. Yeah, that is very interesting. Well, that's, that's good to know that it's still alive and and still doing new things let's move on let's talk about your banjo itself what what kind of banjo is this that you're playing i i know from having seen you over the years that this looks like one that i've seen you with for quite a while but why don't you tell us what it is and and all about it yeah this is uh uh, made by the ohm company ome of boulder and uh it was made for me um to my specs and uh, i actually have two of them that are very similar. Okay. It's maple, has a, um, 
you know, 26 and a quarter scale length. It, mm-hmm. it has a very rounded Telecaster-like shaped neck. Now, is that part of what you consider your specs? Was that a feature that you specifically wanted? Yes. That round shape? Yes. And, and, okay. and I wanted, and this was, uh, I wanted to be, see, I keep my thumb behind the neck, so I wanted a smooth transition from the uh, the thinner part of the neck to the thicker part of the neck, and that requires some very sophisticated carving. It, it requires actually a slightly different radius for the thinner part of the neck. Oh, interesting. For it to come out even. Anyway, they managed to pull that off. You know, then things like even string spacing and uh, low action. Yeah, actually, actually, let me even pause you right there. Let's let's talk about how your. I mean, you you just said low action, which does not surprise me at all, given your playing style. But what are some of the setup considerations for someone who plays like you do, which is very different from someone who's mainly playing in the first five frets and and not fingering the fifth string and and doing these melodic patterns. Yeah, well, I. I... As I recall, because um, it's been a number of years, you know, I, I wanted a certain height of string and at the 12th fret and at various frets up and down the neck. So, oh, uh, I wanted the the fifth string peg to be kind of evenly spaced with the other strings. Mm-hmm. You know, so as I was uh, going up and down the neck, the uh, if I was going to fret the fifth string, I wanted to, uh, you know, have a consistent place to land with my fingers. Now, is that not typical? I guess that's no. surprising me that you had to specify that. That's not... No, no, it's not typical. You, you, oh, wow. Usually the fifth string peg is in a little bit, so it comes out at an angle. And, and the uh, I have the uh, uh, the fifth string knot has to be fairly short. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I... If I press down on the fifth string note, it doesn't go flat, but it's not flush, so it can ring. So it's ever yeah. so slightly over the fret. So overall, yeah, though, action quite a bit lower than what you would say a normal open back setup would be. Is that, That's is that right. fair to say? And I have all my frets. Right, yeah, no scoop. No scoop. Scoops are not traditional. They evolved in the 1980s. In fact, Mac Benford was the first person to have one. I had no idea. That that's that's cool to know. Yeah. And what what was what did you ask? Uh, it looks like that's an also an 11 inch pot. It's an 11 inch pot. Yeah. Uh, flat armrest. I use a uh, Kirshner tailpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, Bill Keith tuning pegs. Oh yeah, the the standard ones or the or the adjustable tuners. No, the uh, these are the conventional tu- Bill Keith conventional tuners. Yeah, gotcha. And did you mention is that a is there a tone ring in there? And there what, is. What kind of tone? Yeah. Yeah. What is that one? Well, it's a kind of a silver bell. One of the well, there were a lot of silver bell tone rings, but this is it's kind of a spun brass ring. It, it looks a little bit like a master tone ring. But it's spun brass, and there's inside there's a steel bar under tension. In terms of tonality, is that going to be what a little brighter, a little louder than maybe some other options, either like a rolled brass hoop or a tuba phone or a white lady? Yeah, it's a very projecting instrument, but but it has a kind of a, a sweet 
treble as well. So. And um, <clears throat> it, it actually has a uh, um, an optional uh, pie plate resonator. Oh, does it? But I, do you ever use that for anything? Well, I, I've never found that I needed more volume. <laughs> <laughs> So that's good. That's a good problem, I guess. Yeah. You know, I know we didn't cover everything by any stretch of the imagination about your playing, but anything else people should know about your personal style and maybe what makes it unique? I'd like to m maybe stress uh, phrasing again. Yeah, of course. Go ahead. The, the weighting of the two, you have the, the downstroke and the thumb, and I'm mm -hmm. constantly adjusting the weight between the two and kind of rocking back and forth in order to shape the, the tones of the melody. Interesting. So. illustration and, and also um you know being strong enough with your hammer-ons and pull-offs so it's almost like you can tell that they're hammer-ons and pull-offs exactly ju just I that they're smooth notes yeah when you were demonstrating what what were you saying the i forget the term you used when you pull off a note that you had not oh, oh the alternate struck. string pull-off yeah when you were demonstrating that that <laughs> all of your pull-offs sounded indistinguishable from the the plucked or the struck strings so yeah that was a perfect demonstration of that i think so um and, and i know in, in bluegrass um that's not as important a consideration i think because you're you're always you're always plucking yeah you don't i i'm not aware of people who do the the pull-offs of the un unpicked string but um definitely the clarity with which you do the hammer-ons and pull-offs is is every bit as important and that's yeah that's an important thing too so let's move on you you kind of you kind of alluded to you know the your experience with this maybe slightly less than completely helpful book in your early years and how that might have shaped your approach to writing talk about your approach to either writing books or how has that segued into you you now direct what is it three different banjo camps around the country yes um midwest banjo camp where we met and and we'll be welcoming you as a teacher next year yeah already looking forward to it. yeah so are we and then swanee banjo camp in florida that's in march mm -hmm. and in September, just coming up in a couple of weeks, we have uh, American Banjo Camp in Port Orchard, Washington, yeah. which is near Seattle. So um, uh, very early on, developed the ambition of writing instruction books. As soon as I saw one, I wanted to do one. <laughs> uh -huh. So I think the, fir the first one I did was a, a guitar book, um, Finger Picking Fiddle Tunes, 
And then I did a banjo book, but that took a number of years to come out. And, and in the meantime, I had written another banjo book for music sales. Some people know it as Oak Publications. Yeah. And that was Melodic Clawhammer. And I, I think that was a book that kind of got my, my name around. Because uh, in those days, every music store had a, had books. <laughs> yeah. And uh, music sales had very good distribution. And and then I did uh, Clawhammer Style Banjo. I actually did it for a regular book publishing company called Prentice Hall. And, uh, yeah. and they put it out and then quickly went out of business. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but I was able to hook up with a company called CenterStream about 10 years later, and we finally issued it. <laughs> and then that began to sell. And then I began writing for Mel Bay, and I did everything you wanted to know about Clawhammer, which was based on my 40 years of Banjo newsletter columns. Oh, that's nice. So it was already already written for you, basically. Well, sort of. <laughs> it was still a lot of work. But uh, it was actually, at that point, 25 years of Banjo newsletter columns. And then skip forward quite a number of years. I just did Appalachian fiddle tunes for Clawhammer. And that was based quite a bit on the work that I did with Alan Jabour. Yeah, wonderful. Um, and I had to come up with a system for notating uh, syncopation and for projecting and notating syncopation. So I have a whole system in there that uh, works not only for fiddle tunes, but also for ragtime. Yeah, very cool. And and my latest project, which is just about ready to be sent off to the publisher, is Cape Breton and Prince Edward Island fiddle tunes for Clawhammer. <laughs> well, that's already done from my end and probably will be published within. Yeah, excellent. And then talk about these camps. That's, I mean... I can understand writing a book. Obviously, it's hard work, but it's a little bit more of a, a logical extension of playing and learning new music and transcribing tunes on your own. But directing camps, that's that's pretty ambitious. What was um, what got you started with that, and how has that gone for you? Well, it all started with the, the Tennessee Banjo Institute, uh, mm -hmm. and this was in the early 90s. And I was lucky enough to be invited as an instructor to, there were three of them to this. So I was invited to the last two. And th there were like a, a hundred great banjo players who were instructors from all, all over the world, really. Yeah. And there were only 200 students. <laughs> so it was almost like one to one. Almost, yeah. yes. It, it was. It was a wonderful experience because I, I got. That's how I got connected with all these great uh, bluegrass players and traditional players, and you know, people who I would have never met otherwise uh, yeah. in the banjo world. So, and that was in um, uh, Spirit of uh, Cedars of Lebanon State Park in Tennessee. Okay. And again, this was what, like 92, 93, 94, kind of? Yeah, I think that it was. date range? Yeah, I think it was 90, 92, 94, something like that. Okay. And the principle was that um, people would be assigned to teach classes in their specialties. So um, that kind of faded away. And a few years later, um, Nancy Nitsche, who is um, the widow of the founder of Banjo Newsletter, 
yeah. started calling all the teachers and said, well, in my husband's memory, I, I want to keep the tradition of the Tennessee Banjo Institute going. So we're going to start a new event and it'll be called the Maryland Banjo Academy. And so this was in Fre Frederick, Maryland. It was sponsored by Banjo Newsletter and there were three or four of them. And I, I got, um, I wound up being the uh, director of the old time segment. Okay, so you'd had some early yeah. exposure to this type of Yeah, so that's how it started. Gathering. And, I, yeah. and I made a lot of rookie mistakes that I, <laughs> that I learned from. But again, it was the idea of assigning people to teach their specialties. Yeah. <clears throat> Even to the extent of if somebody was a little vague about what the specialties were, we would assign them the class of, like, I remember we assigned Walt Koken the class of the style of Walt Koken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For example. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember a, a, a terrible rookie mistake. Well, there were two. One was assigning two teachers who had op different opinions about something to the same class. Oh, and teaching about that thing with... On the theory yeah. of, oh, oh, great, the students will be exposed to different points of view. No. <laughs> Are you at liberty to share who this was? Uh, I probably, I probably shouldn't because I did it more than once, but it, it turned out not to, <laughs> you know, it, it's not, it wasn't Fair a good enough. idea. Fair enough. And, um, and the other thing was um, learning to keep a tight ship in the concerts. Oh yeah. I've, you know, which I've been firsthand involved with. Right. Somehow. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yes. You're our, our peerless engineer, but um, no, the, um, I remember one, one occasion where uh, we had this immense lineup and everyone was supposed to do two songs and about the third person said, oh, you folks would like to hear another song, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, and it throws everything off, of course. And yeah. it, it opened the floodgates and I think uh, by midnight, we'd only gone through half of the of the lineup. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that was not one that I was involved with, I'm happy to say. No, no, this, this was in... Uh, in Maryland, and but but anyway, so uh, I, I learned, uh, and and the last it lasted till four in the morning. <laughs> oh my god! And, yeah. Anyway, so I, I learned that uh, <laughs> that you know you cannot let people do that. But but anyway, so uh, in two thousand um, one, I believe, Banjo Newsletter decided they didn't want to do camps anymore, and uh, a friend of mine from. Boston said, well, why don't we do one in Boston? That's how it all started. And we put out uh, an ad in Banjo Newsletter. And before we knew it, we had like 150 people signed up. And Wow. So, and and then, you know, and then in fairly quick succession, these other camps sprung up. And, uh, and I, well, that's I, cool. I can tell you how Midwest Banjo Camp got started. Yeah, I would love to hear. Um, so I, I would run into Stan Werben quite a number of years at like the Folk Alliance and uh, other events and we would like have lunch and things and he would say, well, why don't you start one of those camps out here? And I would say, well, that's an interesting idea. Do you mean that you would like to go in on a camp or you would kind of wish me well if I did it? And he said, yeah, call his bluff on it a bit. Yeah. yeah. And then he said, well, <laughs> I probably I would wish you well. <laughs> yeah. And then this happened several times, uh, you know, and, and finally, you know, I, I would, you know, he would ask me the same question and I had the same response and he said, well, let me think about it. 
and and then he said yes let's do it so that's how that and this happened. would have been like oh five or so oh four maybe yeah this would have probably been oh four because the first camp yeah. was oh five i think okay yeah that sounds right well incredible i know it's been a big benefit not only to to me to get to go but to definitely hundreds of other banjo players every year who get to go to those it's always a positive experience from what i can tell well, it, it's a really wonderful experience for us organizers to see it all happening. And yeah, and, sure. and it was such a, a tragedy to have to go online for two years because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's nice to be back. I can say that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think we'll wrap it up. But one of my favorite questions to ask near the end, especially for somebody who is uh, fairly prolific like yourself, is there... Is there any particular recording of yours that if uh, someone is looking to just get into your music, uh, is there one that you're the most proud of or would recommend as the best example of your banjo playing? Well, you know, I, I was just going over all of my recordings in, in preparation for the uh, Cape Breton and, and Prince Edward Island book. And uh, so I, I would say um, Northern Banjo. Yeah, so check it out, everyone. And then uh, lastly, leave us with how to find you and your music. And I assume there's links also to the to the camps if they go to the to your homepage. So uh, let us know what that is. It's just KenPerlman.com. All right. And there's no A in Pearl. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Uh, well, hey, Ken, it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you and everything. I really appreciate you giving us your time and... and sharing your stories. It's been great. Okay. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That's going to do it for that interview and for this episode of the Picky Fingers podcast. The sound clips you heard were Road to Mexico by Ken Perlman, Banjo Neek by Walt Koken, Sligo Made by Ken Perlman, Billy in the Lowland by Ken Perlman and Alan Jabour, and then two more by Ken... Lord McDonald's Reel, followed by Leather Britches. Thank you once again to VIP supporter of the show, that is Sebastian. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of the show yourself and reap marvelous rewards in the process. Email the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great day, and I will see you next time. <laughs>